they're taking the piss. Taking the piss. I have to wrestle. Los dickheads. Bushi, huh? Well, these are supposed to be warm-up matches for the G1. Huh? I've already wrestled those two plebs. I'm uh, sure you Bushi's not in the sodding G1, is he? What an absolute chode that guy is. Huh? Uh, waste of my time. Uh, well, match. Give me the day off. What's the point in these tag matches? Huh? You're in the G1. You know, a preview match. I need a preview match. A waste of my time. Get down the pub. Welcome to another mini-sode of the Wrestling House Show, this time covering round 8 of Round Robin Block Action in New Japan Pro Wrestling's G1 Climax 29. My name is Chris, and tonight I'll be talking about all 10 block matches from nights 15 and 16 of the G1 Climax Tour. The end of the 29th G1 Climax is quickly approaching, so if you've missed anything along the way, head over to cnjradio.com to listen to all of my recent minisodes covering absolutely everything you need to know about the previous 70 A and B block matches leading up to the pair of shows I'll be covering tonight. There are also written recaps and reviews and some handy block standings for every night if you just need to catch up real quick or just need a reminder of the multitude of matches that have taken place in just over a month. That's a lot to keep up with, and there's a lot to talk about tonight, so let's jump right into it. Night 15 of the G1 Climax 29 took place at the Hamamatsu Arena in Hamamatsu, Shizuoka, Japan on August 7th at 6.30pm Japanese Standard Time. The first match featured two men who had already been eliminated from the tournament. It was Lance Archer, who had lost five matches in a row leading up to this match, versus Sonata, who was coming off of one of the biggest wins in his career by not only being the first man to defeat Kazuchika Okada in this year's G1, but by accomplishing a huge personal goal by beating Okada for the first time ever. Sonata was probably brimming with confidence heading into this match, but Archer did his best to immediately squash any confidence Samita might have had. Archer attacked Sonata at ringside before the opening bell, and Archer would dominate a lot of the match from that point on. Sonata got a little offense early on and quickly attempted a paradise lock, but Archer quickly powered out and made Sonata pay. Sonata missed a pescado to the outside, and Archer responded by hitting Sonata with a running front flip senton from the apron to the floor. Back in the ring, Sonata tried to fight back with some hard chops, but Archer barely reacted to them. One chop from Archer was enough to put Sonata down, so Sonata had to figure out a different game plan. Sonata succeeded in this match when he used his speed and agility to hit some dives, and he was able to occasionally slow Archer down by going after Archer's legs. Even with the offense he got, Sonata still struggled to maintain any kind of control in the match. Sonata switched up his attacks and started looking for his skull end Dragon Sleeper, and that signaled the final few segments of the match. Archer kept getting out of and reversing skull end, but Sonata finally hit a huge break when he dodged Archer's derailer, a move otherwise known as the pounce. Archer hesitated after Sonata leapt out of the way, and Sonata got Archer in a bridging O'Connor roll that seemed to surprise the big man and put him down for a three count. So Sonata got two more points and for the moment became tied for third in the block with three other men. Sonata is still out of the tournament, but tying the likes of Kenta, Tanahashi, and Evil this late in the tournament is not bad at all. Unfortunately for Archer, he had another great performance, only to leave with zero points. He sits at the bottom of the block alongside Osprey and Fale, 
and I feel sorry for anyone within arm's reach of him as he heads into the final match in a few days. This was a very fun opening block match for the night though. Sonata continues to impress and adapt with each new opponent. The live crowds have consistently been super supportive of Sonata in every town he's gone to as well. I think the G1 has been great for Sonata, even if he has struggled to be competitive in the standings. The next match during night 15 was Bad Luck Fale versus Hiroshi Tanahashi. Fale was eliminated and sitting in a tie for last place in the block as the match began, and Tanahashi had been effectively eliminated by Kota Ibushi in the previous round of matches. The rest of the tournament would be about pride for Tanahashi, but Fale's goal at this point is to just take down anyone he can. Taking down the ace of New Japan could certainly count as a big win from a certain perspective. Fale, of course, attacked Tanahashi before the bell. Tanahashi responded by going for Fale's legs, and though he did some damage, Jado and Chase Owens would help slow Tanahashi down pretty much any time he started to build momentum. Jado hit Tanahashi with a kendo stick, and Owens attacked Tanahashi out on the floor within the first minute or so of the match. On top of all the cheating, Tanahashi's knees were clearly giving him trouble. He was walking stiffly down the ramp before the match even started, and Fale's attack on Tanahashi's legs did not help matters at all. Tanahashi's own attacks on Fale's legs led him to go for a figure four after he failed to put Fale in a Texas Cloverleaf. Going after the big man's legs is usually a good plan, but I wonder if it was a good idea for Tanahashi to try to use his own legs in his submission attempt. I feel like his attempt would be weaker than usual, and it would just hurt his knees even more in a figure four. Regardless, Fale did not submit, and the match continued. Tanahashi strung together a good series of offense, but as he went to the top for his high fly flow frog splash, Jado once again hit Tanahashi with a kendo stick. That signaled the end as Fale hit his hand grenade finisher and put Tanahashi in a backslide for a surprise three count. This has to be one of the bigger upsets in the G1, but I think the person most upset was Tanahashi himself. Tanahashi had his hands on his head as he left the ring and headed to the back. This wasn't one of my favorite matches, but I do think it was good. I think it might have been Fale's best match of the G1 though. It will certainly be memorable for the outcome if nothing else. The next match up was another one that I've been looking forward to since the blocks were announced. And I feel like I've been saying that a lot, but it's always true. It was Kenta versus Will Ospreay, and it was as great as it sounds. Kenta was just barely hanging on to his hopes of winning his first G1 Climax. Kevin Kelly said he'd need to win both of his next matches and hope for a very specific four-way tie in order to win. It was a long shot, but none of that would matter if he couldn't get past Will Ospreay. Ospreay had been eliminated a few rounds prior, so his matches were all about building up points and status in the heavyweight division. Granted, Kenta's size means he's technically a junior heavyweight just like Ospreay, and I believe Kenta actually weighs less than Ospreay, but regardless, the G1 Climax is a tournament for a heavyweight title shot, so two points for Ospreay meant two more points in heavyweight competition. The match started quickly with Osprey and Kenta picking up where they'd left off in their tag preview match a few nights prior. The two men exchanged some strikes and dodged a few moves as they ran the ropes in what amounted to a standoff, though the end of the standoff was punctuated by a kick from each man to each other man's head that knocked them both down to the mat. Pretty soon after that, the fight went to the floor where Kenta took over. If this had been a four corners match where you had to slam your opponent into the barricade on all four sides of the ring in sequence, then I believe Kenta would have won right there. Kenta wore Osprey out on the barricades and took complete control of the match. Back in the ring though, Osprey got angry and started showing his strength and striking skills. Both men laid into each other with chops, strikes, and kicks. 
They also started hitting some big moves, though Kenta was clearly focusing on Osprey's taped neck and shoulder. One of the biggest moments in the match was when Kenta hit a falcon arrow on Osprey on the apron of the ring. Osprey barely made it back into the ring before the count of 20, and he was met with another onslaught from Kenta. Osprey pushed through the pain though, and he opened his own sequence of offense with a gigantic sit-out powerbomb. Kenta fought back and got Osprey in his version of the LaBelle lock, which he calls Game Over, which was particularly brutal since he was working hard on the side where Osprey's shoulder was taped, but Osprey escaped and hit an incredible sequence of move after move until Kenta was done. Osprey finished with Stormbreaker and handed Kenta his fourth straight loss after he'd had such a great start. This was a really great match, and I hope we get to see it again sometime. Osprey's increased focus on power and striking matched up extremely well with Kenta's hard-hitting style. It felt like the strikes and kicks got harder as the match went longer, and both men seemed to put so much power in every move that it was like they wanted every move to be the last one of the match. This was a fight, and both men looked great. The next-to-last A-block match during Night 15 could mean elimination for one man, but interestingly, the person who faced elimination wasn't either man fighting in the match. It was Kota Ibushi, who was alone in second place in the block with 10 points, versus Zack Sabre Jr., who had already been eliminated from the tournament. A win for Sabre meant bragging rights, but Ibushi wouldn't be eliminated quite yet. A win or a draw for Okada in the main event of the night would finish Ibushi off if he lost to Sabre here, but it wouldn't be an immediate or sure elimination. However, if Ibushi won, then he'd put himself at 12 points to tie Okada at the top. That would mean the only other man who hadn't yet been eliminated in A block, Evil, would face a nearly impossible situation. He'd have to win his final two matches, including defeating Okada in the main event of the night, and hope that the final match between Abushi and Okada somehow ended in a double disqualification or double countout. If all of that happened, then there would be a three-way tie which would put Evil over the top since he'd have beaten both Okada and Abushi already. But a double DQ is nearly impossible in the G1, so effectively, Evil would be eliminated. So, long story short, Evil was the only man who faced probable elimination in Abushi vs. Saber. So how was the match? It was great. It started off with both men respecting the danger of their opponent. They were cautious of each other, and neither man seemed to want to get too close. Saber knew that he needed to avoid Abushi's kicks as much as possible, and Abushi knew that he needed to keep Saber from getting any sort of grip on him. That led to a lot of circling and reaching as both men were hesitant to get much closer than an arm's length away. Saber started searching for holds, but he tried to get cute and kick Ibushi, so Ibushi put Saber down with a few quick kicks of his own. That opened the match up, and Saber started to zero in on Ibushi's injured ankle. Interestingly, Saber didn't exclusively go for the ankle. Instead, Saber spread his attack around pretty much every body part on Ibushi's body. That kept Ibushi completely off balance for long stretches of the match, and it also allowed Saber to sneak in and accumulate damage on Ibushi's ankle since Ibushi never knew where Saber's attack would focus next. I think Saber actually did more damage to Ibushi's ankle with an all-over attack than he would have if it had been obvious that he was solely focusing his attacks there. Ibushi would have just shut that down real quick. Most of this match had Saber move from hold to hold in extended sequences as Ibushi struggled to counter at first and to power out when his counters failed. Saber did well, but he seemed visibly frustrated at times when Ibushi wouldn't give up and would find ways to get to the ropes for a break. Saber's ability to mostly control the match while on the mat made him cocky though, and twice he started to taunt Ibushi. 
As usual, those moments sort of felt like he was trying to bait Ibushi, but they also left Sabre open to some serious attacks. Sabre taunted a bit too much late in the match, and that led to Ibushi hitting a Bomaye followed by Kamigoye. Sabre was done, and Ibushi got the pinfall victory and two more points. That put Ibushi in a tie with Okada, and like I just explained, that effectively eliminated Evil from the tournament. It's now a two-man block, and regardless of whether Okada wins in the main event of the night or not, Ibushi has a chance to win the block in the final night of A-Block competition. As for the match, I thought it was great. I love seeing Sabre transition from hold to hold, and he did that a ton in this match. He pretty much had his way with Ibushi, but Ibushi's ability to endure pain and punishment made it a frustrating night for Sabre. All of that made it an exciting match, though. The main event of Night 15 was also quite exciting. It was Evil vs. Kazuchika Okada, and it turned out to be another long night for the IWGP Heavyweight Champ. Sonata pushed Okada to the longest match in the entire G1 Climax in the previous round, and Sonata's tag partner and LIJ stablemate, Evil, nearly pushed Okada to meet that grueling match length. For Evil, the tournament was pretty much over, but there's always something to be gained by beating the current champ. For Okada, a win or a draw against Evil meant that he could still win the block even if he went to a draw with Ibushi on the final night of A-Block competition. Okada is not interested in draws though, and he went into this match against Evil as confident as ever. Okada's loss to Sonata just a few days prior didn't seem to shake the champ, and he methodically dominated Evil during the first part of the match. Okada wrestled a smart match and kept Evil down with varied attacks, and wisely kept the fight inside the ring as much as he could. After a while, Evil rolled out of the ring to escape and regroup, and I think Okada might have gotten too confident at that point. Okada chased Evil to the floor by hitting a Pescado, but Evil quickly turned the momentum into his own favor when Okada failed to take the fight back into the ring. Evil used the barricade and some chairs to take control for the first time in the match. One chair was thrown at Okada's head, and another chair was smacked off of Okada's head with Evil's chair-around-the-head baseball swing thing that he's been doing throughout most of the tournament. Evil got an earful from Red Shoes, but the damage was done, so Evil didn't care. The chair swing was one of the better-looking ones in the whole tournament, too. Most of the time, it's pretty obvious that the guy taking that shot is pushing the chair off his own head when Evil swings, but this time, the back of the chair looked like it scraped up against the back of Okada's head as it was pushed off, and it really looked like it hurt. Evil controlled the match back in the ring, but Evil's momentum was cut short by a tombstone pile driver from Okada a few minutes later. That was a turning point in the match. The crowd got noticeably louder, and they would continue to get louder until the final bell. Evil and Okada both picked up their own intensity at the same time. They both started looking for their finishers, Okada with his Rainmaker and Evil with his Everything is Evil STO, and there were some great sequences where they would try and miss and counter and go for each other's finishers and miss and counter and on and on. The action was frantic by then, and each sequence ended with a huge strike of some sort. At first, Evil was the one hitting most of those sequence-ending strikes, but Okada wouldn't stay down, and then Okada started hitting some strikes of his own. A few lariat variations from Okada built up to a Rainmaker that folded Evil in half as he crashed to the mat, and at the 27-minute mark, Okada pinned Evil and eliminated from the G1 Climax. Now there's no question that it is just down to Okada and Ibushi. Ibushi needs a win while Okada needs a win or a draw. It was a great run for Evil, but I think a win for Okada tonight simplifies things and makes the final night much cleaner and easier to get excited about. I think the match against Okada was Evil's best in the tournament, and pushing Okada to the limit like he did is very good for Evil. 
Evil is smart about how he approaches his matches, and even though I wouldn't necessarily list him as one of my top favorites in New Japan, I'm pretty much always entertained by his matches. Kind of like Sonata, I think Evil is on the verge of getting some good single success. Being tied with Sonata, Kenta, and Tanahashi in the G1 right now is a good indication of his future success. I mean, Okada is great, and he usually puts on a great match, but I feel like the excitement of this match was the result of both men putting on another great performance, and not just of one man carrying the other. But that was night 15, and up next, on the very next night, B-Block would finish off round 8 of block action with another fun show. Night 16 of the G1 Climax 29 took place at the Yokohama Cultural Gymnasium in Yokohama, Kanagawa, Japan at 6.30pm Japanese Standard Time. B-Block was still wide open heading into night 16, with Shingo Takagi being the only man mathematically eliminated. The first matchup was between two men who were trying to climb up to a 50% win-loss record. It was Toru Yano versus Tai Chi, and both men went into the match with 6 points, 4 points behind block leader John Moxley. So a win meant having a slim chance of making the finals, but a loss or a draw meant elimination. So on paper, you would expect a match between two of the biggest rule breakers to contain a whole bunch of dirty tricks and underhanded tactics, right? Well, that's exactly what we got. The match was saturated with shenanigans from bell to bell. Tai Chi started first by taking his time removing all of his entrance attire. Tai Chi then refused to lock up with Yano at the opening bell. Yano was tired of waiting by that point, so he took a walk up the ramp. That's when Yoshinobu Kanemaru appeared and attacked Yano. So once again, Kanemaru was the first man to attack Tai Chi's opponent in Tai Chi's match. The rest of the match was pretty much all about each man trying to outsmart and trick their opponent first. Tai Chi's biggest move was wrapping Yano up in the ring apron and leaving him trapped on the floor like a big burrito as the referee counted closer and closer to 20. Yano managed to get upright and hop over into the ring before being counted out, and Tai Chi's actions would come back to bite him later. Before that though, both men had some more tricks to attempt. At one point, Yano tried to throw Tai Chi off by ripping off Tai Chi's pants in the middle of the ring. Tai Chi, of course, rips his own pants off to reveal the trunks underneath in every single match he has, but when Yano did it, Tai Chi acted embarrassed and exposed. That was, that was pretty good. Kanemaru tried to get involved again as the match spilled to the outside, and that's where Yano made his best move. Yano managed to get Kanemaru to spit whiskey into Tai Chi's face. Then Yano hit a double low blow on both men and wrapped them both up in the ring apron exactly like what Tai Chi had done to Yano earlier. The lovely Miho Abe ran over and tried to help free Tai Chi, but she wasn't quick enough and Tai Chi got counted out. So Yano moved up to a 5-way tie for second, while Tai Chi got eliminated in a pretty embarrassing way. It was a fitting end of the tournament for Tai Chi, and it was a fun match. Both guys were on their top-tier cheating games, and they generated lots of laughs and smiles from the crowd. And I haven't really talked about it, but I also really enjoy the pairing of Tai Chi and Miho Abe. Tai Chi does all of these dastardly things, but you can always see Miho bowing and apologizing to people for what Tai Chi does. And in this match, you could see her in the background helping the young lions reattach the ring apron after Tai Chi used it to wrap up Yano. I think they're just really great together. The second B-Block match of the night featured another possible elimination. Jeff Cobb took on Tetsuya Naito, and if Cobb lost or had a draw, he was out of the tournament. But Naito had a chance to tie Moxley at the top of the block with this match. Naito's choice of mockery in this match was to take a sumo pose in front of Cobb a few times early in the match. That didn't really seem to bother Cobb in the slightest though, and Cobb started this match very strong. 
Cobb's power was a lot for Naito to handle, so Naito went low and attacked Cobb's knees to take his first advantage in the match. Naito started to get on a roll, but a series of slaps to the back of Cobb's head and some spit in Cobb's face brought Cobb right back into the match. Naito did draw Cobb in for a fake out as Cobb angrily lashed out, but for the most part antagonizing Cobb cost Naito. Cobb was a little reckless when he hit a standing moonsault that connected with Naito, but also hurt his own knee even more. But other than that, Cobb was piling on the damage to Naito. Naito survived long enough to start finding some good counters to Cobb's biggest moves, though. Cobb built up to hitting his Tour of the Islands Power Slam, but Naito countered it into a modified version of Destino. That didn't put Cobb away, but Cobb was rocked, and a second Destino soon after did put Cobb down for a three count. This was a good match that, kind of like Naito's match against Shingo, had Naito absorbing punishment and looking for counters. I think I probably liked Naito's match against Shingo more than this one because of the drama attached to it, but Cobb has been consistently entertaining throughout the G1. This match was no exception, but unfortunately for Cobb, it did eliminate him. Naito is tied with Moxley at 10 points for the moment, but Moxley still has a match to try to pull away from the rest of the block before round 9. And that match was up next. John Moxley faced Hiroki Goto in the third B-block match of Night 16. If you've been following along with these minisodes, then you might have gotten the sense that Goto and Moxley have had very different paths in terms of momentum in the G1 Climax Tournament. Goto struggled to stay consistent early, but he's been making a comeback over the last few rounds. Moxley has kind of been the opposite. He'd remained undefeated until his sixth tournament match, but two losses in a row put Moxley on a downward slump as he went into this match. So with Goto climbing and Moxley falling, it felt like this would be a tough battle for Moxley. And Moxley was apparently feeling the pressure. On his way to the ring, he usually has this sort of calm intensity as he makes his way through the crowd, but tonight, Moxley was angry. As he approached the ring, Moxley rampaged a little and threw a barricade across the floor. Goto, however, was as calm as ever. Goto wanted to start the fight fair, and he held out his hands for a fist bump from Moxley as the bell sounded. Moxley wasn't interested, and he took the fight to Goto right away. Both men traded strikes in the center of the ring to start the match, and Moxley's intensity got the better of Goto. Goto was sent out to the floor where Moxley followed. They brawled, and nearly both got counted out, but back in the ring, Goto started to put together some offense. Goto is a strong guy, and I think Moxley knew that an extended brawl could be dangerous. So instead, Moxley began to rely on suplexes and submission attempts to try to wear Goto down. That was a smart move, and it worked for a while, but Goto adjusted and again began to hit some big moves. The match ended rather abruptly, though. At least, it felt abrupt to me. Moxley was going for a move and ended up on Goto's shoulders in a fireman's carry position. Goto brought Moxley over in what looked like an attempt at an Ushiguroshi, but Goto stopped in mid-move and brought Moxley down into his GTR backbreaker instead. That was all it took to finish off Moxley with a 3-count, and Moxley continued his downward trend in the G1 Climax. I never really thought Moxley was going to win the G1 this year, but I also didn't expect him to lose 3 in a row, especially with the way he started the tournament. I'm not mad about it, it's just interesting. And, I mean, interesting is a good thing, right? I'm kind of glad that Moxley lost to Goto, but not because I want to see Moxley lose, but because his loss keeps more people alive in the tournament. If Moxley had beaten Goto, he would have eliminated three people right away and anyone else remaining under 10 points by the end of the night. But as of this match, there are still seven people who could tie or pass the current block leaders. It makes for a lot more complicated match and tie-breaking scenarios to figure out, but that's one of the great things about round-robin tournaments. 
But yeah, this match felt like it ended suddenly, but I guess that added to the surprise of another loss for John Moxley. The action was good throughout the match, but at just over eight and a half minutes, it was unusually short for a match in its position on the card and for the importance it had in the standings. Even so, I did enjoy it. I also enjoyed the second-to-last match in Night 16, though that enjoyment came with a lot of aggravation and disappointment. The match was Jay White versus Juice Robinson, and I was pulling for Juice 100% to win. I've talked before about how annoying Jay White can be when he cranks up the shenanigans, and he was at his aggravating best in this match against Juice. White had won four in a row heading into this match, and he seemed completely sure that he'd win his fifth during Night 16. With Moxley's loss in the previous match, White was in a position where he could conceivably still be competitive if he lost to Juice, but he'd promised to win six in a row. For Juice, this match was about keeping hope alive while getting some revenge on his longtime rival and former fellow NJPW Dojo Youngboy, Jay White. If Juice lost or the match went to a draw, Juice was out of the tournament. White started the match like he usually does, and he left the ring as soon as the opening bell rang. I think Juice's anger and desperation got the better of him at times, and the constant antagonization from White and Gato, who was at ringside, caused Juice to split his focus way too often in the match. Juice started to mount some offense early, but a distraction from Gato, the first of many, allowed White to start an attack on Juice's knee. From that point on, White focused nearly exclusively on Juice's knee. Whether they were in the ring and actually wrestling, or they were outside and brawling, White's attacks on Juice's knee stacked up quickly and painfully. Juice was hobbled for most of the match, and he repeatedly had trouble maintaining any kind of momentum. Juice would hit some big moves later in the match, but even then he would have a hard time going for a cover, and an even more difficult time getting proper leverage to cover White very well. Plus, any time Juice did seem to break away from White and start to put together some good moves, Gato was there with another distraction. As one-sided as the match often was, the finish was actually pretty tense. White had shoved Juice into the referee Rechuzuno, and that sent Uno out to the floor to recover. In the meantime, Gato slid a chair into the ring for White to finish off Juice. Juice intercepted the chair, and he tried to hit Pulp Friction, his unprettier, on the chair, but it backfired, and Juice was sent back first straight down into the chair himself. That was the beginning of the end as White wore out Juice's leg one more time and applied his unique knee bar submission. Juice wasn't giving up, but White wasn't letting go. Eventually, with Red Shoe's groggy butt back in the ring, Juice tapped his way out of this year's G1 Climax. And with that, Jay White moved up to a four-way tie at the top of the block with 10 points. I think this is a great match, and part of the reason I feel that way is because I was so disappointed in the result. I was disappointed in a good way though, if that makes any sense. White did his job very well and got me to pull even harder against him than I usually do. For one thing, I had convinced myself that the Juice versus Moxley match during the last night of B-Block action would be a pivotal match for both men and likely for others. So I was pulling for Juice for that reason and just because I like Juice and enjoy seeing him win. But man, the Weasley way Jay White tends to get advantages in matches really makes me want to see things blow up in his face. I like the guy, but I'd like to dislike him. Out of the four men in a tie for the top of the block right now, Jay White is the one I want to see win the least. Hopefully, that doesn't make him the most likely to win. One person who could no longer win B-Block, though, was Shingo Takagi. With only four points heading into his main event match on Night 16, Shingo could not catch up to the current block leaders. Even so, Shingo intends to fight to the end, and he had one monster of a fight on his hands during Round 8 with his match against Tomohiro Ishii. Ishii went into the match against Shingo with eight points, so a win would put him in a five-way tie at the top of the block heading into the final round of matches. 
A loss for Ishii would most likely knock him out of the tournament, though, since Naito and Jay White are both already at 10 points, and they have a match against each other in the final night of B Block. This was a must-win for Ishii, but I think Shingo felt the same way, even if that win was mostly just for pride, and a possible future shot at Ishii's never openweight title. Now, with most matches, I like to look at how they flow and how the momentum shifts, and I'll often point out some of the big turning points in the action. But with Shingo versus Ishii, I'll just say this. Watch this match. This was a strong style fight between two powerhouses who started trading strikes at the start of the match and kept hitting each other over and over until the match ended over 20 minutes later. Sure, there were momentum shifts and turning points, but really, this was a battle of endurance and heavy, heavy strikes. There were more lariats, elbows, and punches that I could keep track of, and besides, this match had me so enthralled that I stopped paying attention to the notes I was taking and just got pulled completely into the match and what I was watching. So yes, this was a fantastic match, and possibly my favorite match from both guys in the tournament. Maybe. I'll have to go back and review everything I've seen so far in the G1, but this was really, really good. Shingo and Ishii both seemed to gain energy from beating each other up, and they pushed as hard as they could until finally one of them could not get back up. It was Shingo's last of the Dragon Slam that ended up being the deciding factor, and Shingo's victory over Ishii pulled the dragon out of the bottom of the block and put him in a four-way tie for seventh as far as points go. Shingo might be out of the tournament, but this was a huge win for him in New Japan. This was also a very tough loss for Ishii. It's still possible for him to pull into a tie for the top of the block with a win during round 9, but the main event of the night pretty much guarantees that anyone who wants to win needs more than 10 points. Ishii can't do that, so Shingo has effectively ended Ishii's great run in this year's G1 Climax. The whole tournament has been great so far. I've already gone over most of what to expect in the final two nights of block action, but as a recap, in A Block, Ibushi will face Okada in the main event of Night 17 to determine the winner who will head into the finals. Everyone else in A Block is eliminated. B Block is a lot more complicated, so the easiest way for me to put it is that Goto, White, Moxley, and Naito are all tied at 10 points and have a chance of winning. White and Naito will face each other in the main event of Night 18, so the winner of that match will go a long way in determining a winner. It's likely that there will be a tie, and there are a lot of tiebreaker scenarios possible, so I'll just leave it at that. Those four men all have a realistic shot at winning. So who am I pulling for in B Block? Naito. And I'm pulling for Ibushi in A Block. And we'll find out if my picks actually happened real soon, and you can hear all about it on the next mini-sode of The Wrestling House Show, which you can find on cnjradio.com, the home of The Wrestling House Show and the home of the family of CNJ Radio podcasts. Head over to cnjradio.com to check out all the mini-sodes you've missed covering 80 block matches so far, and check us out on Facebook and Twitter at House Show. And keep on the lookout for my Best of the G1 Climax 29 episode that I'll be putting up shortly after the tournament is over. Possible additions to that list from round 8 are Kenta vs. Osprey, Saber vs. Ibushi, Okada vs. Evil, and, of course, Shingo vs. Ishii. But, as I'm talking to you right now, Night 17 has already streamed on NJPWWorld.com, so I need to go watch that right now to avoid any and all spoilers. I'll talk to you later. Bye.
tournament. Super fucking tournament. Bollocks to the G1. G1 is bollocks.